Thanks for tuning in to Pink Noise. I'm your host, Barry Sherry. For this segment, I'm dropping you right into my conversation with Leslie Briner. And in service of having you, the listener, on the same page, I'd like to offer a bit of background on my guest. My first caveat is brainiac alert. I marvel that my guest today is actually one of my closest friends, given how different I perceive our brain sizes to be. Leslie showed up in my life as a surprise guest at a holiday house party back in 2009. And within months, she was showing up to help paint the walls of what would become my first retail art gallery. One trend I noticed about Leslie is she rarely talks about her professional work in social settings. The truth is, Leslie has spent the last 16 years facing really hard issues, mostly human trafficking, underage prostitution, but also homelessness, poverty, addiction. I invited her onto the show because not only is she a badass and one of my favorite human beings, But I think it's really important to have our eyes wide open to behavior that is occurring in the shadows. And I don't think we can evolve and topple corrupt systems by denying the parts of our society we'd rather pretend doesn't exist. And y'all know this show is about individuals who are following the thread of aliveness in their life. And Leslie's passion has already resulted in lives being changed. And I have a feeling she's just getting started. Given how hard this is to witness in the position that you've been in, to see cases up close and firsthand, what drives you to stay in it? I, I imagine it must be heavy. Yes, it is definitely heavy at times. One of the things that I understand now drives me that I I couldn't have articulated to you five or certainly 10 years ago is that there is a resilience that is built in bearing witness to others' suffering. You can't do it over long periods of time and not do your own work. (laughs) Like you have to stay in a constant path of self-reflection and self-awareness and like taking breaks and burning out and coming back and, you know, like going through the Phoenix, you know, rise and fall and burn and rebuild again. Um, And if I track it back 20 plus years, like I've, I've gone through a number of those phases. I've burned out three times pretty, pretty badly, like where I left my position or I, or I functionally made like a huge change in what my work life looked like. But the real answer to why I decided to leave San Francisco in 2007 was because I had burned out so badly. And part of it was because I had no boundaries and no, no real tools to, um, to, figure out how to sit in witness of that kind of suffering. Like, um, you know, I had, I had already done difficult work at that point. It wasn't new to me. People, people being crappy and violent to each other wasn't new to me. Um, the thing that really like unwound me about this work that is also still one of the motivating drivers today is the sheer hypocrisy of the laws in the system. You know, it was like if 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 people are abusive to their children, um, that's a, that's a that's a sad situation all around, and you know we should intervene in that, and you know we should have systems and processes to protect children and support families and all that. I believe all of that, but there's no law out there that says in 2000, you know, 21 that like it's okay to abuse your children. <laughs> like we have laws against it. Whereas the stuff with prostitution, like it was so ingrained in law that the children were the criminals that I, I really just couldn't let it go. Like I, uh, it really, um, it was my first step into really understanding what I, what I now understand is systemic trauma. Um, 
And I was like, oh yeah, like there's really crappy laws out there that like just straight up criminalize people for their own survival. I now, you know, all these years later know that there's a bunch of those different kinds of laws. So this was just the one that, you know, got, got its hooks into me as I, as I tried, you know, repeatedly to try to build services and try to build interventions to support these young people through their trauma, what I found was that most of what we had out there that was quote unquote to like help people deal with their trauma. Not only did it not work very well with these young people, like their life experiences didn't even fit in the definition. Um, And so there's a thing where my work in trafficking has followed this through line that has led to larger work around trying to have a more integrative understanding of what trauma is because to put it bluntly like i can't go do the work i want to do for these young people because the places i have and the strategies i have to offer them don't work for them very well Um, and i'm not saying they never work for anybody but i'm saying i do not think that they broadly like reflect these young people's experience there's so many things that young folks in trafficking situations go through that just straight up like doesn't fit very neatly in the current definitions of trauma. And then there's the fact that the things that we're told to offer young folks who need to heal from trauma or recover from addiction or mental, you know, anything, those, they just don't work particularly well for a lot of these young folks. So, you know, I have for 15 years sort of been in this like place of well, I'm supposed to be the one that can answer what do we do with these young folks? And my answer is we haven't figured it out yet because the rest of our social service system, um, the, these young people point out where the cracks in all our systems are. They point out where the cracks in behavioral health are. They point out where the cracks in education are. They definitely point out where the cracks in child welfare are. So everything along the way where I have sort of tried to advocate for young people who have had this experience, I keep running into systems going, oh yeah, that system does not work very well. This system, oh, it don't, you know, it only works if you're like blue eyed on a Tuesday, but like anything else, anybody else, not so much. Um, so it, it's sort of this constant pursuit to kind of leave things better than I found them. And if I can, you know, think back in my life and on, you know, my deathbed, whenever that day may come and say, you know, did you spend your time and energy to leave things better than you found them? Um, and I just really want the answer to that question to be yes. So that, that keeps me going. I'm feeling very touched by that concept. It's a good way to think about your life, I think. Did I leave things better than I found them? Or being the idea of reflecting on things from your deathbed, like in the end of days, how am I, you know, was this, was this a good way to spend my energy? Um, and I'll tell you, I've had a lot of very hard experiences, but I've not for one time, not one instant in my entire adult life, have I ever questioned how the value or the worthiness of how I spend my time. Not once. I don't question that at all. It's just not anything that takes up any brain space for me. If anything, I question whether or not like I'm cultivating enough space for like rest and play and recoup and like, you know, am I being as transformative as I can be because I'm a kind of a workaholic? Um, like that, that's more my shadow. And so you're recognizing the need for self-care so that you can be as transformative as possible, which means pausing and taking time out, as you said, for rest and for play. Yep. I, I have an aversion to the term self-care. So I'm just going to name that. Um, I think the term self-care has become very politicized and um, a little weaponized to mean like, oh, like, yeah, an individual employee, you should make sure you have like a nice work-life balance and like take a bubble bath and like maybe like take a yoga class. Or, and there's no discussion about what actually creates sustainable working conditions. And the thing that creates sustainable working conditions is not individual employees. It is policies that are created by companies, by HR departments, by boards of directors. They're they're conditions that are set by what people are expected to do, what they're expected to witness, how many hours they're expected to work, what they're paid, what their benefits are. So the I, I have very little tolerance for an individualized framework of self-care. Um, I believe that everybody needs to um, 
you know, do their self-work to figure out what is sustainable practice for them. And so what is sustainable for me at, at you know, in my forties is very different than what was sustainable for me in my twenties or what was sustainable for me in my thirties. So it's my job as the individual to figure out what is sustainable for me now with like the current conditions in my life. And then what is that for a, for an organization or a business or movements, right? Movements are just as, or, you know, even loosely affiliated organizations, the collective body, right? They have a responsibility to say, what do we think are sustainable working conditions for, for most people? And do we believe that this setting, do we believe that this movement or this volunteer opportunity is like actually doable for folks? Um, and I don't think people as in, in, in an individual level or a group collective organizational level are really looking at it that way. It's like, well, we're going to give you a flex day every so often. And, you know, you're going to go to therapy and those are great. Like flex days are great. And therapy is great, but it's, it's missing the forest for the trees. There's this great quote from bell hooks. And she spoke at the new school a number of years ago. And she said, I had to learn uh, for myself what the conditions were in academia under which I could be well. And so she's talking about her like long, long-term sort of tension with being in academia. Um, I also have a little bit of that, but I very main, I very much intentionally sort of maintain a certain amount of distance from academia, even though I do teach it in, in, in a graduate school. Um, but I do that for the balance, right? Like if I was full-time in academia, it would, you know, kind of give me a particular lens on the world. If, if I had stayed in direct practice, I would be burned out, like past the point of crispy, not useful social worker anymore. So I try to, you know, keep a foot in multiple worlds um, so that I am ultimately controlling the conditions under which I can be well in the work that I'm trying to do. Wow, Leslie, I'm hearing you take a lot of responsibility for your own mental health. And I was laughing inside a little as you mocked the term self-care from the way it can be used in the media to represent, you know, a spa break. But what I think I'm getting about you is how much you care about sustainable working conditions and holding those in power accountable for making better choices. You know, there are some deeply held beliefs some really core philosophical beliefs that have shifted for me over the years, in large part from influence by pe like people in my life. Part of what I recommend to people is to stay really truly curious about a wide range of things because it's the being able to integrate a broad range of things that I think is what, um, you know, has allowed me to sort of move through different things and different kind. I do different kinds of work. And, um, but for folks who are just sort of starting out, like that curiosity should follow the thing that they feel the most passionately about. Like we've been watching a, a lot of difficult things in the world over the last, you know, many years, but certainly the last five years. And I would say particularly the last year, you know, what are the moments, what are the things that, that really just like, undo you, right? That where you're just like, you ruminate, you're just like, oh, I can't believe that's how the world is. Uh, and then go do something about that <laughs> because that's the thing that you're going to be passionate about. Um, and, you know, and, and be curious, but, but step gently because there's very little out there that other folks aren't already working on. As far as like getting involved or, you know, doing something that makes a difference, I think it's about figuring out where you fit into, you know, collective action, community action, mutual aid, um, and, and then spending some time and resources and energy or, you know, whatever it is um, in some of those spaces. Um, one of the major threads in doing direct service and trying to design direct service and evaluate direct service interventions um, was that the, that, that it, it was almost like the young people we were working with were round pegs in a square hole. Like it, it really just, um, there just wasn't anything for them that, that I found consistently worked. So it really set this question of, well, why? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of deep analysis that can be done on why. But the other thing that emerged um, about, I don't know, five or six years ago with um, my collaborator, Teddy McGlynn Wright, 
was what we now refer to as the integrative trauma framework. And so what this is, is an attempt not to, you know, redefine trauma, but, but actually expand on the current working definition um, in a way that allows us a, a, a broader framework and more sort of integrative thinking about what trauma is, what its impacts are, how it shows up, how it's embodied, um, and ultimately like what we can do to restore, um, restore the things that people need to heal um, and change the conditions that are causing the suffering in the first place. So the current working definition out there is that trauma is the, an overwhelming of our ability to cope with the emotions um, that are connected to an experience. So we can't sort of cope with those emotions and we can't integrate them in to our, you know, our, our, our schema or our way we understand the world. And a lot of people talk about that trauma gets stuck. Right, so we have these experiences, they get stuck, they lead to sort of default behaviors and emotional responses. Um, in much more recent days, we've been talking about how trauma is embodied. There's the great work of Bessel van der Kolk, Bob Body Holds the Score, um, and the you know, Somatics Institute, the Regenerative Somatic Institute out of the Bay Area and the West Coast. So there's, there's been more understanding um, of how trauma um, actually works at a neurobiological level. So we understand more about, you know, when somebody is um, the fundamental, like, like actually triggered, not just uncomfortable. Cause I want to make the distinction between somebody being triggered and somebody being uncomfortable. <laughs> a trigger is actually when your threat response and your amygdala goes off and says you're in threat. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that you are under threat, right? Like a memory, a smell, a place, a time of year, things can trigger you, but it's actually your brain survival mode hopping online going, okay, thinking brain, you know, we don't need you right now. It's time. We need to survive. So, uh, so there's lots of advancements in neurobiology. You know, there's the great work of Dan Seagal and the, you know, kind of metaphor of flipping the lid where we, you know, understand that like when we have these stress responses, our, our thinking brain or our executive functioning system sort of goes offline temporarily and we're in fight, flight, freeze, appease mode, or, um, we're in, in this sort of survival mode. So that's been the current understanding of, of trauma. Uh, and we believe that that's all true. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, but what we believe in addition to that, um, and I wanna just state again for the record, the, the attempt that what we're offering is not to say that the definition of trauma is wrong. We do believe it's incomplete. Um, we're trying to expand it and we're trying to create an operational framework where we're not just talking about trauma in terms of its impact, because that's usually how it's talked about. We actually are trying to define what traumatic events and conditions are also. Um, and so that's what this framework does. So first part is it is embodied. It overwhelms our body brain's ability to cope with or integrate emotions connected to an experience. It can be acute, which is like single one time, it can be chronic, which is something that happens repeatedly over time. It can be complex, which is usually different kinds of traumas over time, like thinking about traumas being stacked. So uh, the second piece is that it can be embodied at five different levels. So there's the individual level. There's you, Sherry, you are a person, you are in a body, you are embodied. <laughs> I, Leslie, am embodied. And when, when I have experienced trauma or stress, I have a physiological res response to it, right? My you know, brain um, takes in some sort of sensory information usually that says there's a threat. Um, it sends a, you know, a big um, rush of your stress hormones, cortisol, norepinephrine, um, adrenaline, if you're gonna get like pumped up and then in it moves through your body, right? So when you, you know, have a stress response, you usually feel it first in your stomach, right? You get the butterflies in your stomach and you get the tunnel vision and you get the like tingling under your armpits. And so you're having, we think about this all as being in our head, but the reality is that trauma is really much more acutely felt through your body than it is in your head. So this thing that has happened in the West, um, particularly in like the kind of Western medical, um, mental behavioral health world is that we're, we just talk about traumas in the brain and that really cuts us off from a ton of very important information because your body usually is sending you physiological signals that you're having a stress response before your brain actually like tells you the stress story, right? You feel it in your gut before your brain starts running the story it's running. So, um, so we believe that it's embodied at the individual level, right? That's, that's the thing that we've been talking more about. 
We also believe that it's embodied at the collective level, at the systemic level, that it's embodied intergenerationally, meaning it moves genetically from generation to generation. Um, and we know that because of all of the great um, and more important work in epigenetics. We understand that you know, entire cultures and communities of people who experience a mass casualty um, or something like colonization or slavery or internment or genocide um, have stress markers that go off on their DNA that is passed down to the next generation. We also know that healing can um, turn on, turn those stress markers back off again, right? So I, if I ever share this piece of information, yeah, you have to share both pieces, right? Which is that it, it turns on these stress markers that do lead to negative health outcomes like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and, you know, and other behavioral things like addiction and suicide and violence. Um, but it can also be turned off in a generation, right? So trauma is never a life sentence. Trauma can always be healed from um, perhaps excluding like actual like brain injury type issues. Um, but it is, uh, it is embodied in us at the genetic level. So, you know, the collective body is communities, it's schools, it's um, social networks, right? Um, at, a, at a big level, um, the biggest collective trauma that any of us have or probably ever will experience is this pandemic, right? Like we are in a collective state of stress because of the COVID-19 pandemic that is by any definition a form of collective trauma. Like we will, uh, most people will be like, oh yeah, this is where I was in March of, you know, 2020 when every, when the world changed. Um, if you look at things like school shootings, they're a, a slightly more localized way to understand this. Um, if you look at, um, you know, things that happen where there's a sort of spontaneous community outpouring, um, mutual aid efforts, right? Um, you know, mass disasters like the, you know, the storm in Texas and Hurricane Katrina, um, the, there's, the, there's the loss of life and the loss of infrastructure. The collective trauma though, to be clear, is sort of this many people didn't have to die. Like that, the trauma is the man-made part. The trauma is the negligent part, right? A half a million people as of, you know, February 22nd in 2021, half a million people are dead of COVID. That many people didn't have to die of COVID. So it's not just because, you know, natural disasters happen, illness happens. Those are things that, you know, you, you have a certain amount of that in the admission ticket for the, for the ride of life, right? But there's these things that we do as humans that make that suffering a, usually very targeted, and B, way more suffering than we would you know, actually need to have. That's where things like collective trauma and historical trauma uh, and systemic trauma come in. Oh, whoa. Uh, I just got to catch my breath for a minute. <sighs> Seriously. I love this distinction you're making between the devastation of a natural disaster and the trauma that it creates for those caught in its wake. And the trauma of human suffering at the hands of other humans. What can you call it when all of these adults walk into a hotel room and decide that the one person that needs to go to jail is the 13 year old other than systemic trauma, right? Like every, every step along the way, the cop, you know, the, the first of all, the buyer walks in, I'm older, I have more money, I have more power than you, right? Like they're exerting a, a number of different kinds of power over. And, and that one's less connected to systems. But so then the officer walks in and goes, okay, now I'm going to arrest you. And now the prosecutor, you know, says, oh, well, you're just a, you know, fill in the really, you know, bad name there. And like, you deserve to go to jail, their own defense attorneys you know, the probation officers, the social workers they would interact with, like everybody along the way thinks that it's their fault that this super bad messed up thing is happening to them. And it's happening to them repeatedly and people are profiting off of it. And everybody just sort of is like fine with that. The, but nobody would define that as trauma. Nobody would be like, oh yeah, that prosecutor or that cop is abusing that kid. Let me tell you, I watched Front Row for a very long time, that systemic trauma. 
Um, and I would say that to make a, you know, one final and very current example of this, like we have, we have watched since the summer of 2020 and, and the, the very, um, you know, horrifying public execution of George Floyd, like that's systemic trauma. It's, it's the, the, the harm that police inflict on people is, is one kind of trauma. The legitimacy with which they're allowed to do it, that is systemic trauma. And so until we have a frame to talk about like the fact that it was really traumatic for these, these young people to have these experiences with law enforcement or the fact that it's like traumatic to be black walking through particular neighborhoods that are over-policed and, you know, stop and frisk and, you know, those sorts of things. Like nobody looks at that as trauma except the people in communities who live it every day. They're very keenly aware that it's trauma, but it doesn't sort of fit into this framework that we have. And so we talk about trauma being embodied at these levels, individual, collective, systemic, intergenerational, and historical. And then the last piece that we talk about in the framework is that trauma, and this is us really sort of trying to get to, to, to some sort of statement of what trauma is, right? Because it's, again, it's really been very defined as um, what the impact of it is, right? So we define trauma as the harmful interruption of safety, agency, dignity, and belonging, which are fundamental needs of all human beings. And so what traumatic events and conditions do is they erode people's, you know, if you sort of believe everybody should be born in with a full bucket of, you know, safety, you're safe, you have your basic needs met, um, you know, people care for you, you have the protection of the tribe, you know, you're, you're safe and you have a sense of belonging and you have a sense of self-worth and you have some agency is defined as, you know, having some amount of um, belief that you have control over your conditions, you have some amount of control over, you know, the ability to like navigate and make informed choices on your own behalf. So we sort of believe that we're we come into this world and we should have a certain amount of all these things. And then the conditions that we live in and a lot of, you know, the social identities that we're born into, you know, create conditions of oppression that erode those buckets. And that what trauma is, is really those experiences, be they little tiny cumulative experiences or really big, super, you know, experiences where you have a before and after, or your life really falls in a before and after spectrum, right? That's a one way that like really big trauma is sometimes thought of um, by folks. So it can be a, you know, a catastrophic tsunami kind of traumatic experience. It can be a terrible kind of chronic abuse that somebody suffered over a long number of years. It can be, you know, the perpetual, like, you know, subtle emotional manipulation from a parent or partner that just sort of tells you just, you're just not good enough or you're not something enough, right? All of those things lead us to a place where we are constantly having to hustle for one of our fundamental needs. So we're giving up our sense of dignity in order to maintain that sense of belonging. We stay in relationships that aren't good for us. They're toxic because we're trying to get that sense of belonging, which personally I believe is probably the most fundamental of all of them. What I have seen again and again is people will give up their sense of safety, their sense of self-worth, their sense of control over their conditions in order to maintain deep sense of love and belonging. Um, children will go back to abusive situations again and again and again and again, because our primal bond um, as human beings is is bound in our social is bound in our social bonds when you speak about giving up a part of ourselves in order to maintain belonging i think about the teachings of dr gabor mate mm -hmm. and they're shared in authentic relating practices because he so expertly talks about that need that we have as 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 humans to fit in to so, just the desire to fit in to be a part of something even when it means we have to give up parts of who we are mm -hmm. and and be less than or different than our our organic makeup the the way that we want to show up and speak out and we will hide that in order to feel safe and then we become a society of people who don't know how to show themselves more fully. Because as soon as we get our safety needs met, because we've grown up now and we're taking care of ourselves as an adult, like there's no time in which that switch gets flipped and we're told, okay, you're safe now. Now you can be yourself again. 
Like fitting in right. is most important to fit in to yourself. Right. Yeah. Where does, where does that training show up? Well, not very much in society. I mean, I'd, I'd say that, you know, the conversation is always evolving. Um, but you're very right that, you know, if you're someone that um, didn't ha either had uh, either straight up unsafe or dangerous, you know, circumstances in your unbreaking or just even th where things were really chaotic or unpredictable, um, you know, you really do start to question things like safety. And so then you get older and you're, you know, technically safe, like you can, you have, you do have additional, you know, control over your conditions or ability to make different choices. The problem is our behaviors are really patterned very young. Our responses to things, the stories we tell ourselves, the little filing boxes that we made in our minds to like help us sift and sort and organize the information that we take in every day. We take in millions and millions of pieces of discrete data every single day and your brain has to go sort them out. And, you know, we're consciously aware of an infinitesimal, tiny, tiny fraction of that data. And so you have these schemas in your mind that are, you know, developed at a very young age. They're obviously highly influenced by your, you know, your parents or caregivers or the environment that you're brought up in. And, and they're filled in by your own innate temperament or by our own innate temperaments. Um, but by the time you sort of get older and you are, you know, quote unquote safe, or you do quote unquote have agency or some control over your conditions, then, you know, we're, then you have to do the work of breaking out of whatever default patterns or socialization patterns um, aren't serving you anymore. The thing that we are motivated towards that we're trying to build, uh, we think of as universal access to healing, which is that there is universal act that there, there are pathways to healing all around us at all times. Everything from traditional uh, things like therapy and medications, which definitely help a lot of people, but to embodiment practices, to uh, you know our original um, forms of medicine, singing, art, dance, creativity, poetry, pleasure, communing with nature, meditation, sitting quietly, laughing, you know, being absurd, <laughs> building things and, you know, like playing, like all of those things are healing, but we're sort of told the story that you have the trauma and you go to the therapist and, you know, I train therapists. I love therapists. Like I, I have no, I have no issue with therapists at all. Uh, other than the fact that that is not the only pathway to healing and traditional cognitive talk therapy doesn't, doesn't work well for a lot of the adolescents that I work with. So I feel like it's a thing that works better for certain people who are at certain developmental places in their life who need to do a certain kind of work. But that's really the only thing that we're told is available. And really there is healing, there's pathways to healing all around us. There's pathways to healing in relationships you're in. There's pathways to healing out in the you know, natural places that you like to walk. There in you know whatever movement practices you like to do. There in whatever songs you like to sing and listen to and play. Um, so we really are trying to cultivate this framework that says you know trauma is embodied. It overwhelms our ability to cope. It's embodied at these different levels, and that the pathways to healing also then have to be practiced at these different levels. So there's individual pathways to healing, there's collective pathways to healing, um, there's systemic pathways to healing that that, ne that necessarily need there to be better systems of accountability and real justice, not punishment, because we're sort of a society that's drunk on punishment. Um, you know, historical trauma is healed through cultural healing, right? Like at, at a large scale, like large scale acknowledgement and atonement for things like slavery and genocide. Like that's what it's gonna take to heal shit. Like you wanna look at the issues of racism in the United States. You have to look at the, you know, the original the sin of slavery in the United States. We're not going to get past this quote unquote, not that that should you know, even really be the goal, until we, till we look at it at a cultural level and we're really able to understand the ways that white people as a, as a class have you know, systemically benefited at every level over people of color. So the pathways to healing sort of derive out of those different levels of embodiment. And then, and then from there, you can see that there's really kind of countless different pathways. You know, you can work on restorative justice issues. You can work on you know, building safer communities. You can work on gun reform legislation. You know, and, and if, the, if you are a person whose life has been traumatized or impacted by these things, doing advocacy, working on 
on activities or efforts that change the conditions that cause that suffering is deeply therapeutic. Um, it really, really is. So is creating art. So is like, you know, crying and screaming into a pillow, right? Um, but we've, we believe that, you know, we've gotten away from the idea that we actually have universal access to these things. Also under there would be things like universal healthcare, <laughs> right? Like people actually being able to get like good behavioral health treatment who want like, you know, more clinical traditional forms of treatment. So it doesn't um, negate any of those things. It says more is more. Um, if those things are, are bringing you wellness or healing or helping you thrive and they're not causing harm or exploitative to other people, other beings or, or the planet itself, then it's a pathway to healing. Now, you know, people might go, well, well does that mean that like <clears throat> being part of like a racist organization because it gives me a sense of belonging is a pathway to healing? And I would say no, because being part of that kind of belonging is predicated on a sense of dominance. And so we try to distinguish between um, interventions or strategies that are reliant on dominance or reliant on exploitation. That's not healing. That's some sort of counterfeit sense of belonging, but it's not really shoring up the sense of safety, agency, dignity, and belonging that we all want all people to have um, as well as universal access to healing. There was something you said a minute ago, and I wondered if you could just explain it real, uh, real quickly for me. You said we are a society drunk on punishment. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah, we are a society drunk on punishment. Um, I mean, so this gets into a, a whole other um, area that I spend a lot of time thinking around around transformative justice, the criminal legal system, um, the. Uh, you know, because of the work I've done in trafficking, I've worked adjacent to legal systems. I've worked with law enforcement, with prosecutors, with defense attorneys, juvenile court folks for, you know, all my years. And <clears throat> because I worked adjacent to them for a long time, you know, they become your colleagues and you sort of believe, many people believe in sort of like incremental change from within the system. Um, and I've been very involved in making incremental change within the system, right? Like we don't really generally arrest kids for prostitution anymore, although technically you can still do it in Washington. In practice, we don't do it very often. So, you know, it's not to say I don't believe in incrementalism, <clears throat> but what I have come to believe is that I believe that hurt people hurt people um, and that most people do not enter violence for the first time as a perpetrator. The vast majority of people, for the things that they get, punished for, incarcerated for, um, are responses to trauma or attempts at survival. The number of truly dangerous people that we have incarcerated is very, very, very small. Um, we have more incarcerated people per capita than any other country on the planet, and I think it's shameful. Um, so when I say we're drunk on punishment, I think that in order to have the unfair fettered, um, you know, prison industrial complex is one phrase that's been used, but there really is like an entire market for private prisons. Um, and then you need the underlying laws and policies that allow us to incarcerate so many people. And in order to uphold those laws and policies, you have to have beliefs and assumptions about folks who are committing crimes that's where the drunk on punishment fits in, right? So in order to be sort of able to collude with such a profoundly carceral state as the United States, which is a deeply, deeply carceral state, meaning we incarcerate a lot of people for really insignificant things, things that we're now turning around and being like, oh, weed's legal, right? A lot of, lot of people still sitting in jail for selling and possessing cannabis. Um, because we are such a carceral state, we have to have a set of beliefs and assumptions that allow us to um, collude with something that is actually profoundly dehumanizing. Like you, you pay a sole cost for privilege. Um, you pay a sole cost for looking the other way when other humans are suffering. And so the way that we do it and the way that we basically like convince ourselves that it's okay is by being a little drunk on punishment and be like, well, you did the crime or you do, you know, you gotta do the time. Um, and honestly, like any, any sophomore analysis of the criminal legal system shows us that that's just ridiculous. 
Um, and any sophomore analysis of the economic system should tell you that there's no such thing as people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, and a lot of what ends up people in prison is, is issues related to economic um, uh, access and opportunity. It's not always pretty what you do professionally, what you have to witness and feel in dealing with people experiencing homelessness and what you have to know about kids who are disadvantaged. And certainly when you deal with youth who have been trafficked. And what got you to the place where you thought I could make a difference here? That this is something I wanna stand for that's uh, a really great question. It goes, it goes way back. I, I think in many ways, I was a very um, empathetic child, very curious about the world around me. Um, and I had a blend of, uh, I think, temperament and uh, experiences in my upbringing that just made me very curious, honestly, about like the nature of suffering. Um, and, uh, and I think I was pensive about those things from a young age. So, so there was that, like, I think that's probably just part of my temperament. Uh, cause it's, it's, uh, it's just as true now as when I was like five years old. I'm very concerned about animals that looked sad or, you know, people that looked like they were struggling. Um, and then as I got older, uh, and started like understanding the world around me, I, I went through a period of what I call my like free floating privilege anxiety, which was, you know, my late teens and early twenties where I was like, oh, the world's a very, very unfair place. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some unfair ways it treats me, but like relative to how many people are treated, like I, I definitely have it pretty good. Um, and the, the sort of pursuit to understand that you know, led me to school um, to, to be able to, you know, have what I would, you know, sort of refer to as a framework. So I was always interested in it. Um, I was sort of intellectually curious about it. And then in my family, um, my mom very much like there was an ethic of community service. Like we were in Girl Scouts and, you know, I did like leadership awards and, you know, we did volunteer work and I was doing my own volunteer work by the time I was probably 14 or 15 years old. Um, so I was, I just did it. I just always, that was just always what I did. Um, it's a little, it's a little tough in some ways because there, I don't think there was ever a point at which I ever really contemplated another career. Like, or I just like, this is just what I do. I did work in restaurants and, and bartended to make money at different points. Like that was the way I earned income. But the thing I was always doing was, was some version of social work. And you identified at an early age the difference between things that went wrong in your life where you might feel it's unfair versus how people with in less privileged situations suffered. What do you think allowed you to have that lens? Honestly, probably it was my mom. If you met her, she... No one would have ever thought she was radical. <laughs> but like there are some... There are a couple of very core distinct lessons that I learned from her that I now understand to have been deeply radical. And so one of the things she did was like, you know, I, I always knew that we lived on a lonely land. Like I understood that, and not because she ever sat down and like gave me Howard Zinn's People's History. Like I kind of still found that on my own when I was 16 or 17. Um, and honestly, she probably wouldn't have even known who Howard Zinn was or to give me something like that. But she knew that like, we were white people on stolen land, like somehow something, even though she was like a white lady from New Jersey, you know, when I would sort of start griping about something that she found um, probably pr privileged or snotty sounding in some way, like she didn't, she never used the, oh, there's starving children in Africa, which is, you know, a terrible trope and we shouldn't do that. She, she would, however, critically point out differences in, you know, my life and in the lives of other people. 
Um, you know, we also went into, you know, urban settings and saw art, like we grew up in the suburbs, but we'd go out in the Bay Area and we'd go into San Francisco and Oakland and, you know, see art and see festivals and see different cultures. Um, so I think she, she was also very, um, very reticent about consumer culture and like wouldn't let me wear anything that had like a logo on my, would sort of notably would say if, if, um, if they want you to advertise their brand on your backside, they can pay you to do it. So there's all these like messages that I'm, I very clearly remember getting, not to say that it was all like, great. Like there was also other messages like, you know, don't ever let people see you cry, which I also know now in, in a later point is, probably wasn't a great message to get as a young person. Um, and my mother's an amazing a woman, but just to say that it's, you know, these things all tend to come in a complicated package. Um, but however it happened, I ended up with a, a fairly like critical awareness. Um, and that then made me go consume a ton of, you know, media and politics and history. And, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm, I still do that today. Um, so there's never a point in which you like stop learning about the world. Now the world all works together. Um, but I, I started pursuing that young and I very much, you know, attribute my parents and the family I grew up in. I will also say culturally, like I grew up in the Bay area in the nineties. Um, and culturally that was just a really like, it was a, it was an extraordinary privilege to get to grow up there around the diversity and the thinking and the technology and the, you know, uh, that the, that that part of the country has to offer. Mm. So what I'm hearing is that there was a stage set for you, not only with your mom's wide lens on the world, but the time and the place in which you grew up, like aided you having a wider perspective than most people. Would that be true? I, well, I would say, I think it aided in having a wider perspective. Like it's the then most people thing. <laughs> I, you know, you just try to be, careful about because it's, you know, I just, I have my life experiences and, um, I, uh, I do think that culturally, like the, you know, where you're raised and the ideas that you're raised around, like what you have access, what seems possible, what's in your environment, um, what you get to listen to on the radio, like a lot, it was a lot, honestly, a lot of what, you know, my early teenage, um, you know, thinking was shaped by was things like, you know, KPFA, like local radio, um, democracy now, which I you know, still listen to 20 plus years later. Um, so it, it, I think that environment, you know, shaped my thinking for sure. Um, yes. And so what threads are you following now? Um, I know that you're working on a book. Is that a project you want to talk about? I can talk a little bit about the, like where that particular thread came from too. Awesome. Um, which, which might actually probably make a little bit more sense uh, as, to, as to the audacious thing that we perhaps, you know, might offer. As I, so as I mentioned in the top, we had a, like a very strong ethic of service. So I did different things, mostly focused on ch children, um, children and families. You know, I worked in a you know, shelter for families experiencing homelessness, ran programs for young folks with developmental disabilities, worked some in the foster care system, um, uh, and then ended up in 2005 in San Francisco responding to an ad for a program director for youth services at an organization called SAGE. And um, at the time in 2005, and I actually found this because I was looking on Craigslist very early in the very, very early days um, about this idea about human trafficking. And I didn't um, really understand what it was, um, but it was something I was interested in. And this organization comes up in San Francisco and they're hiring for a youth services program director. So I got this really extraordinary opportunity, um, sort of very early on in what would become the, you know, the anti-trafficking movement. Uh, but the really extraordinary part of the opportunity was to get to work around survivors. Like I, I mean, everybody in this agency knew, like, you know, intimately, like their day in day out lives had had been this issue. And you know, I'm this like privileged white girl from the East Bay who's coming in because like I can sign the legal documents like it's it's kind of a ridiculous situation so one of my early conversations with the executive director she says um to me 
you know, part of what you have to do, Leslie, is go out there and, and like help people change the language. We have to call this commercial sexual exploitation, which is what we called in the way back days. Uh, now we just kind of call it trafficking. She said, we have to change the language because until we change the language, they'll just be child prostitutes and nobody will care about them. And if I have been following a thread for the last 15 years, that that was the moment. Like that moment and then what happened later that week where I went in and I met with my first young person who was like, you know, 13, had just turned 13, like looked like a child. She's in on her third prostitution charge. And I walk in and I'm just like, in what universe did all the grownups think that the appropriate thing to do here was to put this child in jail cell? Um, and like that, that was it. Like I was, um, I was hooked. Like I, the, the sheer, um, like it, it was so illogical and backwards and upsetting to me that we were locking up children who were that young for something that very clearly under no other circumstances could they have consented to. So, uh, so I did that work for a long time. I, you know, ran two of the first five residential recovery programs in the United States. I've, you know, done all manner of consulting and training and developing training and curriculum and all of this stuff. But along the way, <laughs> I also observed that the set of programs and services and therapies and, you know, all the things, the very, very limited number of things don't work particularly well, at least not for the population that I was working with. And my belief is that it doesn't actually work particularly well with most of the population, but, but because the young people that we were serving had such extensive complex trauma, um, because they had had the life experiences they had had where they you know, really didn't need to stay. They would just leave. <laughs> like if they stayed in a place, it was, it kind of had to be because they chose to stay in a place unless it had a locked door, which is one of the things we, you know, kind of trying to advocate against. So I have spent, uh, you know, all of this time in this pursuit of trying to figure out how to provide, like how to, you know, change the systems that were causing that suffering, um, and create a service system and sort of, um, I would say like standards of care or standards of practice and training um, that allow us to, you know, you know, interrupt the thing that is causing the suffering and, and help the young, help young people and communities that are impacted by this. But along the way, I was like, oh, so we don't have the, the things that we're doing aren't working. <laughs> I mean, they're not working well enough, fast enough. Um, and, uh, and so that sort of started this other thread um, uh, that I have worked on with my collaborator and friend and um, conspirator, Teddy McGlynn Wright, and uh, who I went to school with 10 years ago and, and sort of we've been working on this idea of the integrative trauma framework uh, since then. Adding in an editor's note here, because Leslie continued to talk about integrated trauma framework, but it was so compelling that as I was editing this episode, I moved a lot of that conversation to the beginning. What struck me at this point of the interview was I was still stuck on the vision of her meeting that 13-year-old for the first time. You know, the one charged with prostitution and how shocking that must have been. I told her how I was impacted hearing this. And I felt rage towards the adults who could turn a blind eye to the care and well-being of this young person. She went on to tell me about the system that allows for situations like this to continue. The history of trafficking crimes and how the criminal legal system responds to such offenses. Her answer included two tracks. First, she explained there were no unique circumstances that differentiated between charging an adult or a child. Enter her 13-year battle to change these laws. And second, our society from a cultural level equates prostitution as a choice. When you're talking about young people, it, like they very clearly should be exempt from this, right? Like they can't consent under, you know, under no other circumstances, if an adult is having sex with a child, you know, is that okay? Because they're giving them $20. Like 
children shouldn't be criminalized for this. The children under the age of consent couldn't actually consent to the underlying sex act and prostitution. So they certainly shouldn't be being criminalized for that same thing. Um, especially when at the time, you know, the vast majority of young people who were in prostitution or, you know, what we would now refer to as trafficking situations were under the control of a pimp or trafficker or third party or family member or something, right? So um, the landscape of that looks a little bit different now, but certainly back in the day, this, this was really an attempt to try to start to, um, you know, shift the policies as they pertain to children and to kind of start having the conversation around um, prostitution or sex work policy uh, writ large. I get asked a lot, like, you know, th this is a lot, this is, this is terrible. There's people out there buying children on their lunch break for, you know, on their phones from their, you know, work parking lots, all of which is true, by the way. And so what can we do about it? But what I really encourage people to do when they're faced with any of these big social issues is hold space for possibility and transformation. Start to actually believe that a different world is possible. Um, go to narratives, read sci-fi, read survivor stories. What happens is because we're so inundated with like trauma porn all the time, we go, oh, the world's a terrible place, the world's an awful place. By many, many objective metrics, the, okay, pandemic aside, by many objective metrics, the world has actually gotten better for the vast, like for, you know, at a, at a statistical level, like more people have access to food, stable housing, education, those things than, than we did 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So there's one way in which the trajectory of humanity like has gotten better for most people. Now what's happening with climate change is certainly an existential threat to, to all of us, no matter like how good our access to food, shelter, education is. But in order to make it to the next phase, whatever that is, we all have to collectively be able to dream what it is and to think about what it is. And so, you know, what would it look like to have a society that had, you know, a, a legal regulated sex trade market that wasn't completely predicated on exploitation? Like, how could you actually do that? How could we actually do that? Um, or maybe you don't think it should be legal and regulated, but like, how, then how else? Like, what, what does it look like for, their, for us to have communities and societies that are not drunk on punishment, that are not predicated on exploitation of human suffering <clears throat> and labor and capital. Um, so the, the like, like and donate and subscribe is, is one answer to how to get involved in an issue. Um, but the thing that working around so much trauma has taught me, uh, and it's, it's sort of, um, it's, it's a little counterintuitive in some ways, but what you realize when you work around that much trauma is how profoundly resilient and creative human beings are, the further their limits are pushed. And so in some ways, like, yeah, I've worked around a lot of trauma. I've also worked around the most brilliant people you'll ever meet because they have survived things in ways that most of us can't even imagine. Um, and so there is a, there is a type of possibility that you understand when you're looking at it from the, you know, the, the dirty bar floor up, you know, or from the ground up, you see things differently when you're not like looking in from the, you know, the, the movie or the special or the story that your neighbor told you or the Instagram post when you're like, like in it looking out, um, you just see things differently. And so the thing I guess I wanna to offer to folks listening is the whole really creating space for thinking about what, what a different world looks like. That's what folks who are, who are marginalized, who are traumatized, like that's one of many things they need us to do. But to get out of the status quo thinking of suffering and exploitation are just a natural part of the human condition, I don't believe that. I think that's bullshit. Like, I think we can do better um, and I want us to do better. And that's what I remain committed to doing. I'm so glad you're here on the planet with me. That's very kind of you, Sherry. You keep on working your magic out there in the world because we need you. Yeah, thank you. We need you too. You're the, you're the story weaver. And as the story weaver, it's my privilege to share these details about how individuals on this planet 
are choosing to spend their time in service of others. This seems to be the path of those I'm spending time with, and so I honor them here on Pink Noise. Next week, my guest is Shika Shade. She launched This Is My Story, What's Yours? with the goal of breaking down barriers to go beyond the facade and help people create deeper connections with each other. This is my kind of person, and I can't wait for you to meet her. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within.